Father, we thank you that we once again are given the privilege of singing and declaring the greatest news that has ever been shared. Father, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, the victory over sin and death and hell and the grave has been overcome. It's been won. And Father, it's a victory that you and your grace and your kindness and your mercy, you offer to us as a gift to be received freely by faith. Father, this is a privilege that we cannot even begin to imagine. And so as we open your word today, Father, we submit ourselves to its authority, Father, to its purity, to its sufficiency. Lord, help us to see today with fresh eyes, to hear with fresh ears, to believe with renewed hearts and transformed minds, and to see once again, to capture vision once again of what it means to be distinctly your people in a world that is desperately sick and far from you. So Father, will you speak through me this morning a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, I ask, will you sanctify us in truth? Your word is truth. We cling to it now. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And I hope you'll just go ahead and get a sturdy bookmark and keep it there because um, we are going to be in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 for uh, a minute. Today, we are kicking off what we expect to be about a six-month message series on the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. It was the early church father, Augustine, who is first credited with referencing Matthew chapters 5 through 7 as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is widely regarded as the most famous discourse in all the Bible, and it could be argued along with Psalm chapter 23 as two of the most famous writings in the history of literature. Um, last fall, as a church, we studied the book of Titus, and this past spring, for those of you who are with us, you remember we studied the doctrine of the church for about four months. So our aim for most of the last year has been to answer the question, what is a true church? So if we spent the last year answering the question, what is the true church? Our aim for the rest of the year is gonna to be to answer the question, what is a true Christian? And if you were to ask me to summarize for you what it meant in practice to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I would tell you to go read the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to ask me today, what does it look like for me to actually live out my faith in the way that Jesus calls me to live out my faith? What does it look like to be a Christian? I would take you to Matthew chapters five through seven. It was John Stott who said, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. The underlying theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount is how followers of Jesus Christ are to look, live lives that look radically different from the rest of the world. You know, at the risk of just stating it the very obvious here at the, at the beginning this morning, church, the lives of Christians and non-Christians should look different. We should live our lives in such a way that it is distinct from the rest of the world. And I don't just mean in our external behaviors like our words, our actions, our habits, because true faith in Jesus Christ is first and foremost an internal transformation that affects our desires, affections, attitudes, and motives. 
Now, this should seem really straightforward for us that we should look different from the rest of the world, but here's the dilemma that we face today. We're living in an age of biblically confused Christianity. And, and this has led to a culture of compromise even within the church. As a result of our biblical confusion, as a result of the loss of what it looks like to distinctly be the people of God, we have in many ways churches that are spiritually, morally, ethically, doctrinally, and relationally compromised. And in many ways, we look no different from the rest of the world. And it's a world that we need to be absolutely certain is doing everything within its strength, everything within its power to fearmonger us into compromising who Jesus has called us to be. We are told day in and day out that if we do not march lockstep with every nuance of the secular creed, and if we are not in constant agreement with the ever-shifting definitions the world has regarding tolerance and inclusivity and affirmation, that we're on the wrong side of history and we had better adapt or die. And sadly, what we're seeing is that many professing Christians have capitulated to those demands. We have surrendered the word of God and surrendered who Jesus has called us to be in the name of not wanting to be on the wrong side of history. But both statistically and anecdotally, here's what we continue to see. Those who wave the white flag to the world's demands are not only not surviving, their churches and denominations are rapidly declining. As we saw last week when J. Will was here, Jesus has promised he will build his church. And so church, it's important for us to remember, he has promised to build his church, not our church. And the moment we abandon the word that he's entrusted us to be serving as stewards and heralds, the moment we abandon who it is he's called us to be distinctly as the people of God, we no longer have claim on that promise of Jesus. We might be building our church, but at that point, we're no longer a part of building his church. The great need of our day is not a church that conforms to the demands of the world. The greatest need of our day is a church that's willing to confront the world with the message of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's radical confrontation with a wildly disoriented world. The lines between the church, what we continue to see, the lines between the church and the world are increasingly being blurred, and there's a sense in which we have lost the otherness that Jesus has called us to embrace as a holy people who have been called out of death and sin. And so this is Christ's radical confrontation with the world. It's here in Matthew 5 through 7 that Jesus describes his people not as a nominal subculture of the world, but as a radical counterculture to the world. This is the underlying message of the Sermon on the Mount. It is 2020 vision in a world of spiritual blindness. It is where Jesus confronts an upside-down world with right-side-up truth. And Jesus wastes no time declaring this new kingdom, declaring this new reality in Matthew 5.3, where we'll see today from this passage that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven only belongs to those who know they don't deserve it at all. This is the paradox and the promise of the kingdom. The only people who can receive the kingdom of God, the only people who can be part of the kingdom of God are those who are willing to admit that they don't deserve it. This is the paradox and the promise. The only people who can receive the kingdom are the people who know they don't deserve it, that there's nothing that we could ever do on our own to earn it, but the promise of this, that if we will come to Jesus empty-handed, He'll give us everything in return. So let's read one more time, Matthew 5, 1 through 3. This is the passage Ashton read for us a few moments ago. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, at this point in time in Matthew's gospel account, there's several key events that have already happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has already been preaching and teaching. He's healing the sick, casting out demons, performing miracles. So by the time we get to Matthew 5, Jesus is already wildly popular. But before we can fully understand the type of life that Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7, we have to understand the underlying theme of all of Jesus's preaching, which is found back in Matthew chapter 4. So uh, after being baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus goes out in the wilderness for 40 days and he overcomes the temptation of Satan. And then Matthew 4, 17, after John is arrested, Matthew tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was foundational to all of the preaching and teaching of Jesus. This is the message that he preached everywhere that he went. This is the message that was being preached by John the Baptist before Jesus came onto the scene. This is the message that's preached by Jesus. This is the message Jesus has given to us to preach to a lost and a dying world. This is the underlying foundation of all of the preaching and teaching of Jesus. This word repent in its simplest form just means a complete change of mind. We could carry that out a little bit and talk about how it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life, but it is in its simplest form. It just means a change of mind. What we are doing in repentance is we are agreeing with God about who his word says we are apart from Christ, and we are agreeing with God about who his word has said that he is. So in in repentance, what I'm doing is I am agreeing with God, not just that I have sinned, but that I am a sinner. I am agreeing with God that there's absolutely nothing that I can do to remedy that on my own. I am agreeing with God that Jesus Christ alone is my one and only hope for salvation, that righteousness and holiness only comes from him. And this change of mind then leads to a change of life. It's not just a head knowledge. It it infiltrates our hearts. It transforms us from the inside out. And it leads us to live lives that look radically different from the rest of the world. This is the message Jesus preached everywhere he went. And this is critical for us to understand. Because Matthew 5 through 7 is describing the kind of life that will only happen when your mind has first and foremost been transformed by the gospel. If you try to do the Sermon on the Mount without repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it will be a fruitless endeavor. What Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7, the type of life he describes for followers of Christ, it's impossible without Matthew 4, 17. So as we study this passage in these chapters over the next six months, we constantly have to keep Matthew 4, 17 in mind. You might just want to write next to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bible, Matthew 4, 17. We need Matthew 4, 17 to understand Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So verse 1 tells us uh, that Jesus saw the crowds. This is one of the things I love about Jesus through the gospel. Jesus is always drawn to the crowds. Let me, let me just ask this question. Like, how many of you really like, like, super crowded spaces? How many of us like traffic? How many of us like going to an amusement park and, and there's a two-hour wait for every single ride that you get on? And most of the time when we see a crowd, uh, we don't feel compassion. We feel frustration. We, we see inconvenience. We see this is a nuisance. We, we see problems. But every single time we see Jesus through the Gospels encountering a crowd, his heart breaks for them. Every time we're in a crowd, anytime we're among the masses of people, it should break us as we remember that many of them are perishing apart from Christ that they are desperately seeking life and hope and truth in the midst of a dark and broken world. So Jesus sees the crowd. 
It says he went up on the mountain. Uh, this mountain, the exact location is not really known. It's traditionally believed to be located just northwest of Capernaum, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And when he got there, we're told he sat down. Uh, this was a posture of authority. This was typical of, of Jewish teachers whenever they were going to sit down. So he sits down and his disciples sit around him. And then there's a crowd in the background that's listening into what he's teaching. And it says, uh, he got there, he sat down, and then it says he opened his mouth. Now, this is not Matthew trying to state the obvious. Uh, yes, you do have to open your mouth to be able to teach. Whenever uh, you see this language, this is a Jewish idiom, which is indicating Jesus is about to say something that's a very big deal. It's, it's, it's an authoritative statement. Like th This is a very reverent and, and sobering moment. Jesus is about to declare something that, that is important for all people across all of time. Matthew's writing this gospel account to a predominantly Jewish audience, so the symbolism of this moment would not have been lost. In the same way that Moses descends from Mount Sinai with the law of God's word, Jesus ascends to the mount to declare his word. What we see happening here at the beginning of Matthew 5 is a picture for us that a new Moses had arrived. A new mount had been appointed, and a new way was about to be declared. And what's the very first declaration that the king makes about his kingdom? Like if Jesus were running for office, like what, what is the first campaign promise that he makes? He opens his mouth and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With one statement, Jesus flips the whole world that's upside down, right side up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are three critical questions about this passage we need to answer because they lay the foundation in many ways for the rest of the sermon. So the three questions we need to answer this morning are, what does it mean to be blessed? Second question, who are the poor in spirit? And third, what does it mean to have the kingdom of heaven? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are three questions that we need to answer together today. So first question, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we call uh, verses 1 through 12 the Beatitudes. That's probably the heading that's in your Bible. Uh, this comes from the Latin term beatus, which can translate happy. And it's also true uh, that the Greek term here for blessed can translate happy and does translate as happy. But we have to be careful with this because uh, it, it's a word that's much deeper than happiness. We have to be very, very careful with, with how we translate this because if we're not careful, all of this will be misleading because of our own misconceptions about what happiness is. Uh, D.A. Carson has commented on this passage. He says, although some modern translations prefer happy to blessed, it is a poor exchange. Those who are blessed will generally be profoundly happy, but blessedness cannot be reduced to happiness. To be blessed means fundamentally to be approved, to find approval. Happiness, church, can be fleeting and circumstantial. Blessedness, according to Matthew 5.3, is something that's fixed and unchanging. Our experience with happiness, it can come and go with our feelings, it can come and go with our emotions, it can come and go with our circumstances, but God's approval of us remains fixed and unchanged through Jesus Christ, which should lead us then to the place of deep happiness. True happiness only flows from the blessedness that we have been promised in Jesus Christ. And we need to see this because culturally we have such a skewed understanding of what true blessing and true happiness really are. Um, against my better judgment, a couple weeks ago, whenever I was preparing for this message, 
I just went over to Instagram and I kind of knew what I was getting myself into, but I went, went to Instagram and I went to the search bar and I just typed in hashtag blessed. Just want to see what pops up. And, and unfortunately, you know, most of my, my fears were, were realized of what I expected to find. And so I was like, I, I just want to look like, what are the first 20 pictures that pop up with the hashtag blessed? And this is what I found. Of the first 20 pictures, there were five selfies, uh, 10 pictures of people in like bathing suits or just really revealing outfits. There was a guy getting a haircut. Um, there were two videos of athletes showcasing their skills. There was a graphic that said, don't let anyone take away what's great about you. There was finally one image of a single Bible verse. Unfortunately, it was taken out of context, so I can't count that. Um, and, and so again, like culturally, like it, it, this is a little bit of a shallow understanding, but like culturally, uh, it, it appears this is what we think it means to be blessed. It, it's to have a good body, it's to have a good looks, it's to get lots of attention. It's to be very skilled. It's to have a good personality. It's to ignore all the haters and what they have to say about you. Claim promises of God's word, even if they don't mean what we think they mean. According to our culture, that's what it means to be blessed. And then the other side of this, we see a similar skewed understanding of happiness. It's a headline of a Forbes article from May 2015. The, the headline was, The Secret of Happiness Revealed by Harvard Study. Well, check this out. What's the secret? So they, they had surveyed uh, classes that had come through, and here was the summary of their findings. They, they said, happiness comes from choosing to be happy with whatever you do, strengthening your closest relationships, and taking care of yourself physically, financially, and emotionally. So according to a Harvard study, guys, th there it is. That's the secret to happiness. Just choose to be happy. Healthy finances, healthy relationships, healthy emotions. That's all it is. Like, this is the secret to happiness. And here's, here's the trouble. Like, it sounds right, doesn't it? But like, it sounds at least somewhat plausible. What I'm going to do is I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to choose happiness. Positive thoughts, right? I'm going to choose happiness. I'm going to have a healthy family. I'm going to maintain healthy relationships. I'm going to stay in shape. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to make wise financial decisions. I'm going to go to therapy and get myself sorted out on a regular basis. And if I will just do these things, then I will be happy then I will be happy. But here's the question, church, that we have to answer. Where do you go when all of that fails? Where do you go when all of this inevitably lets you down? What do we do when we wake up and we desperately wish we could just be happy? We desperately wish we could just choose to be happy, but we can't be no matter how hard we try. What do we do when the marriage starts to fall apart? What do we do when relationships with kids are strained? What do we do when friends stab us in the back? What do we do when we get cancer even though we paid meticulously close attention to our bodies? What do we do when we lose our job? What do we do when our savings are depleted? What do we do when our investments fail? What do we do when we're still an emotional wreck no matter how much therapy we pay for? What do we do in this moment? When everything around you collapses, Christian, what you need more in that moment than anything are the words of your heavenly Father, blessed are you. Blessed are you. This is a key question every single one of us has to answer. This is fundamentally the difference between someone who's a Christian and someone who's not. Are you living for happiness in the world? Or are you living from your blessedness in Jesus Christ? Are you living for the happiness of the world or are you living out of the abundance and overflow of the blessing you already have in Christ? Because true happiness doesn't come from getting everything in the world. True happiness comes from recognizing you have already received everything in Jesus Christ. 
And this is what it means for us to be blessed. So second question, who are the poor in spirit? True blessing is living in the abundance, the overflow of the approval that we have received of God. But then who are the poor in spirit? Well, before we get into what the, who the poor in spirit are, let, let's talk about for a second who the poor in spirit are, uh, are not. But let's talk about what this doesn't mean. We need to understand right out of the gate that being poor in spirit does not mean being someone who is poor spirited. Poor in spirit does not mean poor spirited. The fact that this statement starts with the word blessed is a solid indicator that Jesus is not calling you to some sort of Eeyore existence, right? Like lots of Eeyore Christians walking around. God can never love me, can't do anything right, I don't think I'm gifted at anything. I mean, everything is just down, down, down. Everything's bad. Life is always a drag. You know, just a second, we're going to look at the dangers of self-pride, but church, we have to recognize that equally as sinful and destructive is self-pity. It it is still pride, just in the opposite direction. Self-pity is pride disguised as humility. And in many ways, it's worse than self-exaltation because by pretending to be humility, it's masquerading itself as a positive virtue. And so we, we have to recognize, yes, self-exaltation is, is sinful pride, but man, so is the self-pity that says God could never love me. Because that's the opposite of the first beatitude. Poor in spirit does not mean poor spirited. You're not an Eeyore Christian. You're not a grumpy Christian, for sure. Like, this is not what Jesus is calling us to. Being poor in spirit, church, is exactly what it sounds like. We are spiritually poor. It is poverty of spirit. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce has defined it like this. He says, being poor in spirit is the opposite of being rich in pride. In fact, you might say that being poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt before God. It is the mental state of a man who has recognized something of the righteousness and holiness of God, who has seen into the sin and corruption of his own heart and has acknowledged his inability to please God. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. I think what really heightens all this and our understanding of it is, is if we'll just understand a little bit of the spiritual climate during the time of Jesus. During the time of Christ, there were five primary groups of uh, Jewish religious leaders who dominated the religious landscape. And these groups were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And each one of them had their own definition of what it looked like to live with God's approval or to earn God's approval. Each one of them had their own understanding of what it looked like to be the kingdom people of God. So here's a little bit of a background on each one of these groups. You had the Pharisees who were heavily on the conservative side. Uh, They were powerful theological conservatives, and, and their pride was in their ability to perfectly keep every aspect of the law. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you had a theologically liberal group who were the Sadducees. They were guilty of editing out parts of scripture that they did not see were in step with modern times. So most notably, the Sadducees, uh, they, um, they, they dismissed any notion of, re- of resurrection. They saw this, these supernatural occurrences as things that couldn't happen. You had the scribes who were experts in the law, and they tried to interpret it according to every facet of life, which in and of itself was not bad. But the issue with the scribes is they would interpret the law, and then they would treat their interpretations of the law as equally authoritative as the word of God itself. And at times, they would exalt their own traditions and interpretations above the, uh, the foundation of the word. Then you had the Essenes. The Essenes chose a life of separation. So out of a desire to not be polluted by the world, they moved to a different geographic location, and they chose lives of isolation. Then finally, you had the Zealots. The Zealots were revolutionary activists who wanted to see Rome overthrown and Israel to be restored. 
And at at the heart of each one of these movements was the same sin. They were rich in pride. All of these groups were rich in pride. For the Pharisees, it was the pride of thinking they could perfectly keep the law on their own. For the Sadducees, it was the pride of thinking that God's word was too outdated for modern times. For the scribes, it was the pride of thinking God's word wasn't sufficient, so they needed to add a little bit more to it. For the Essenes, it was the pride of thinking holiness could be achieved by moving to a new geographic location. For the Zealots, it was the pride in their heritage and country that made them think they could establish the kingdom by force in their own strength and power. In the middle of all of this, Jesus walks up a hill and he opens his mouth. And he doesn't say, blessed are the proud in spirit, blessed are the PhDs in spirit, blessed are the political in spirit, blessed are the powerful in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's for the morally and spiritually bankrupt. He says the kingdom is for the person who recognizes the depth of their sin and they have seen the holiness of God and they ache for the righteousness uh, that, that he offers, but they know there's absolutely nothing that they could do to achieve this on their own. And, and understand the word that, that's used here for poor, that this is not working poor, this is begging poor. This is desperate, destitute, empty cup, sitting on the side of the road, desperately hoping someone will just drop in a few coins so that you can survive level of poor. Church, it is the exact opposite of the hell-bound arrogance that proclaims at the top of its lungs, I can do this on my own. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are in poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who know they can't do it on their own. Blessed are those who cling to God's word even if the world rejects it. Blessed are those who recognize only God can fully usher in the kingdom. Blessed are those who understand holiness cannot be achieved by just removing yourself from the world. He says this is who the blessing comes to. It's, not, it's the opposite of the theological liberalism that says God's word is outdated so I can edit it to my liking. It's the opposite of the conservative fundamentalism that says God's word isn't clear enough so I'm going to add it to myself. It's the opposite of the Christian nationalism that says I've got to take up arms and establish the kingdom by force because God's taking too long. It's the opposite of these things. You know, centuries before, uh, King David had fallen into egregious sin. You know, many of us know that the story, he, uh, while Uriah is, is off in battle, he commits adultery with his wife Bathsheba, and then he conspires once he finds out she's pregnant to have Uriah put to death. And so David has just committed, I mean, just this heinous, egregious sin. But then we see his repentance in Psalm chapter 51. And what does David tell us through his prayer that the Lord desires? What does he delight in? The answer is in Psalm 51. David says, the sacrifices of God, what's that say? Are broken Spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God's word reminds us it's the proud that God resists. It's the humble who receive grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The powerful example of this, uh, if you go to Luke chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, Jesus is as we often see him through the Gospels, he, he calls Matthew Levi. Matthew's a tax collector who, at the time of Jesus, that was like a, a special category of sinner. There was like sinner bad, and then there was tax collector bad. And yet here's Jesus calling Matthew to be one of his disciples, calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples. So the accusation comes against Jesus. You eat with sinners and tax collectors. The, the religious crowd, they're, they're not for this. 
They don't like that Jesus has, has entered into the world of these people. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 5, 31 through 32. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he goes on to say, I have not come to call the righteous or those who think they are righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And church, this is a really important example for us because again, right now we're in a church climate that tends to err on one side of this or the other. So, so we've got more of a, of a conservative kind of fundamentalist wing that's over here. It's like, hey, the way we are God's kingdom people is we, we separate from the world. Like we, we stay over here. We're in isolation. It's, it's retreat mode, right? Like we're out here. We're not going to be influenced by it. We're not going to be touched by it. We're not going to be infected by it. And so the solution is just get away from everything and just, just pull away. But we, we see here, man, that doesn't stand up because Jesus himself entered into the space of sinners. He, he entered into their turf. He entered into their territory. Jesus is known as a friend of sinners. So, so we know that doesn't square with biblical Christianity, but here's what's on the up, opposite side of the this, of this spectrum. You get a very progressive voice that says, yes, see, Jesus was friend to sinners. He, he entered into the world of the marginalized and the outcast and, and those that were rejected by the religious system. But church, we have to remember, yes, he sat down at table with them, but what was the lunchtime conversation? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to do what? To repent. Jesus has not called you to fully just disengage from the world. But Jesus, j just because you, you, you maybe have surrounded yourself with sinners does not mean you're doing the work of Jesus. Unless we are doing what Jesus did, which is to lovingly call them to repentance, then church, all we're doing is providing a polite escort on the way to their destruction. We're not truly living like Jesus if we fully remove ourselves from the world. We're not truly living like Jesus even if we're in the world, but refuse to call it to repentance. We ask the question, like, why did Jesus get flack from both the religious and the secular culture? It's because of this. The religious culture hated him because he entered into the turf and territory of sinners. The secular culture hated him because he was calling them to repentance. And friends, if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. This is what it means to distinctly be the people of God. But it's such a powerful promise to us. The one who says, I have nothing to bring. Jesus invites you, bring that nothing. Bring your nothing and find your everything in him. It's a famous stanza from uh, the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And why does Jesus say that the poor in spirit are blessed? Because it's only those who are poor in spirit who are capable of becoming rich in Christ. It is only those who have emptied themselves of themselves who will ever be truly full of Christ. And this is what it means to be blessed. There is blessedness, friends, in our brokenness. Jesus says, if we come to him poor in spirit, we will find him rich in mercy. So third question we need to look at. We, we know now what it means to be blessed. We know who the poor in spirit are. Third question, what does it mean then to have the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to have the kingdom of heaven? Now we're going to do this really quickly because this is a theme uh, that we're going to heavily revisit, especially in the coming eight weeks as we work through the Beatitudes, but it will be recurring um, for the rest of the years we study the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, Matthew 5.3, the first beatitude, and Matthew 5.12, the last beatitude, both promise the same thing. 
Matthew 5, 3, Jesus promises, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And then he says at the end of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 12, blessed are those who are persecuted. He goes on to say, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both the poor in spirit and the persecuted are promised the same thing, which is the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, here is the danger in preaching through the Beatitudes the way we're going to over the next several weeks. Is, is that when you work through the Beatitudes one at, the, one at a time, we run the risk of seeing all of these as eight different groups. But the fact that the, the, the statement in the phrase kingdom of heaven, the fact that this book ends the Beatitudes shows us these are not eight independent statements, these are eight interdependent statements. Jesus here is not describing eight different groups of people. What he's, what he's describing here in Matthew 5, this is the whole of the Christian experience. If, if you have had a change of mind, you've entered into this work of repentance, a change of mind, a heart, a mind, a life that's been transformed by the gospel, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, it describes then the whole of the Christian experience. So again, you know, here like Twitter generation, just think about it like this. Like most of the Beatitudes are less than 280 characters, very tweetable. It was nice of Jesus to do that. So short statements, very succinct, you know, little, little post-it note type, type memories. But, but the trouble is, again, we can start to look at these as different things. So if, if Jesus was on Twitter, which I really wish he was because that place is a hot mess. If Jesus was on Twitter, uh, this is not one single tweet. This is a thread of tweets. This is one that's, that's continually building on the other. So there's a natural progression and order then to the Beatitudes that we see in verses 3 through 12. So very quickly here, we see in verses 3 through 12, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And finally, blessed are the persecuted. So follow the progression here. Those who are poor in spirit, we'll see next week, will mourn over their sin. Mourning over sin, we'll see the following week, will lead you to a place of meekness and humility. Those who have humbled themselves before God will hunger and thirst for righteousness. The righteous, out of that natural overflow, will be merciful, which will help them to remain pure in heart. The pure in heart will desire to live at peace with others. And here, here's where it's crazy, is, is that in this upside-down world, Jesus promises us, if you are righteous, if you are merciful, if you are pure in heart, if you're a peacemaker, Jesus promises you'll be persecuted. Because think about this, our world does not value the Beatitudes. These are not values that are celebrated by our culture. I mean, just think about the first three right out of the gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These are not the virtues that most of us are pursuing. Like, we don't like this as a culture. We don't celebrate this as a culture. No, as a culture, we reward loud. We reward arrogance. We reward pushiness. You do whatever you have to do. You compromise whatever you have to compromise. You cut whatever corner you have to because we got to beat the other side, right? Like, like we, we got to get to the top. We're going to push our way to the top and force our way to the top. These are not the virtues that are celebrated by our world. And yet Jesus says, this is what kingdom people look like. You want to know who my people are? You, you, you want to know who belongs to me? Read these verses. These are who my people are. This is who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. It is the opposite of what is celebrated by our world. From poor in spirit to persecuted for righteousness, from start to finish, Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven is yours. You know, Matthew's gospel account is uh, the only one 
that uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven. You remember from a few minutes ago, Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Um, and so kingdom of heaven is a euphemism for uh, what could also be kingdom of God. You read the rest of the gospels, you typically see kingdom of God. Jewish people had high regard and reverence for the name of the Lord. So kingdom of heaven is a euphemism for kingdom of God because uh, essentially God and heaven are one and the same, synonymous with each other. And so in its simplest form, this phrase kingdom of heaven It refers to God's perfect rule and righteous reign over all who by faith belong to him. In its simplest form, that's what the kingdom of heaven is. John had been preaching and proclaiming, Jesus had been preaching and proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus was saying, what was it through his life, what John was saying about Jesus through his his life, through his ministry, it was the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. It had come to earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the kingdom was made manifest through the work of Christ. It now reigns in our hearts. And friends, one day, that the day is coming that it will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus promises here, Jesus promises, this is the promise of the gospel, if you belong to Christ, the kingdom belongs to you. All the other beatitudes, except for the first and the last, they talk about something that will happen. No, Jesus says, though, of the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's not something to come, it's something we receive in the here and now. And so if you're sitting here this morning asking the question, what exactly is it that God offers me? According to Jesus, God is what God offers you. He offers you himself. The fullness of the kingdom manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So for Jesus to say the kingdom is yours, is for him to say all that I am, all that I have, and all that I can do, it belongs to those who are poor in spirit. It's yours. All of this belongs to you. And and listen, this is what's so beautiful about the words of Jesus. Just because you are poor in spirit does not mean that God is going to be stingy in his blessing. It's one of my favorite promises in all of the Gospels. If you look at Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 33, Jesus speaks to the crowd around him, and this is what he promises and what he tells them. He says, fear not, little flock. This is his shepherding heart, his tender shepherding heart for his people. He says, fear not, little flock. Why? He says, for it is your father's good pleasure to do what? To give you the kingdom. God not only desires to give us the kingdom, he delights in giving us the kingdom. And so what then is the response of our lives? If if God is not stingy in this blessing, if he's not withholding the fullness of the kingdom, what what does this then mean for our lives? Jesus says, so sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, So Jesus is saying, listen, you, you are now free from, from the tyranny of the happiness that this world promises you. What the gospel does is it frees us from the pursuit of happiness in the world, and we start to live our lives in the abundance and the overflow of the blessedness we've already received in Jesus. Jesus says, so live your life untethered from this world. There's something coming for you. There's something you've already received, and there's something that's coming for you that's, that's far greater than anything that you could experience for yourself. This is the promise for the poor in spirit. So I ask you again, are you living for the happiness of this world, or are you living from the blessedness you've already been given in Christ? 
Are you living out of the abundance and the overflow of the fact that, friends, you have already, if you are in Jesus, you have everything you need so we can live lives that are untethered from the rest of this world? So, so two challenges for us in response as we close out our time together this morning. Two challenges for us that go together. The first for us is to simply admit your spiritual poverty before God. Admit your spiritual poverty before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the poor spirited, but the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize they bring nothing to the table. Blessed are those who are empty-handed. Blessed are those who feel that they have failed. Blessed are the defeated. Blessed are those who are ready to wave the white flag and surrender. Admit your spiritual poverty before God, and we do this because Jesus promises, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So admit your spiritual poverty before God, and second, humbly receive the gift of the kingdom. That gift, friends, is Jesus. Humbly receive everything that he is for you. Admit before him, I have nothing to bring to the table, and then humbly receive the fact that he's saying, that's okay, I will give everything to you. It's the paradox and the promise of the kingdom. The only people who can receive the kingdom are those who know they don't deserve it. And this is such an important word for us today, church. It's such an important word for us to see because as we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as we come to Matthew chapter 7 later this year, we find one of the most, some of the most sobering words in all the Bible, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And this is why we have to start with this foundation of poor in spirit, because what Jesus says in Matthew 7 is the type of people who are planning to stand before him and read off their spiritual resume, those are the type of people that he will look at and say, I, I never knew you. Like we see that some of the most haunting words in all the Bible towards the end of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will do what? Will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not do all these mighty works in your name? And then Jesus is going to look and say, I, I don't even know who you are. Some of the most sobering words in all of scripture. And I, I fear, friends, like if, if that is your plan on the last day right now, like you're, you're just planning to read off your spiritual resume, like, Lord, here's my church attendance. Here's my Bible reading plan. Here's my generosity and giving. Here's all the humanitarian work I did. Here's how I sacrificed. Here's how I gave. Here's the many mighty works that I did. If your plan is to stand before him and read your resume, he's going to throw it in the trash and say, I don't know who you are. But the person who comes before him and who with tears in their eyes and gratitude in their hearts looks at him when they are asked, on what basis do you enter? We do nothing but we point to the one sitting at his right hand. He's the reason I'm here. Not my righteousness, his. Not my works, his. I brought nothing to the table and it is only because of what he's done for me that I can stand before you. Friends, this is the only appropriate answer before the judgment seat. Not what we have done for Christ, but what God through Jesus Christ has done for us. He promises this to the poor in spirit. You know, the more specific answer to the question, who are the poor in spirit, is everyone. Everyone is poor in spirit. 
We are, all of us, every single one of us, in spiritual poverty. We are spiritually and morally and ethically bankrupt before God. We have no righteousness of our own. We are, all of us, poor in spirit. The question isn't, are you poor in spirit? The question is, are you willing to admit your spiritual poverty before God? And it's the reminder that this will be the natural overflow of the one who has repented at the announcement of the kingdom. So if you profess the name of Jesus, and yet you are not poor in spirit, it might be time to determine whether or not what has happened in our heart is true and genuine. Because Jesus does not make this promise to the proud. He doesn't make it to the powerful. He doesn't make it to the strong. It is only to those who admit their spiritual poverty before God. It is the poor in spirit, not the proud in spirit, to whom the kingdom belongs. You know, um, uh, th- there's an episode of, of The Office. Any, any Office fans uh, in, in the room? Okay. Uh, episode of The Office where Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, um, he's having like major financial problems. And so it's one of the most famous scenes from, from the whole series where he walks into the break room one day and there's Creed and there's Oscar. Now, if you've seen the show, you know, Creed is always involved in like extremely illegitimate like business practices behind the scenes, uh, is always doing things that are questionable at best. And so Michael's been bemoaning all of his financial issues. He walks in the break room and, and he's, uh, Creed basically tells Michael, he says, well, you know, your, your solution to all of this, Michael, your financial woes is just to declare bankruptcy. And, and Michael kind of groans a little bit, and he's like, Creed, like, like, no. He's like, in Monopoly, if you declare bankruptcy, you lose. And, and Creed's like, no, it's, it's not that way. He says, you declare bankruptcy, all your problems go away. He says, it's, uh, it's nature's do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. Then Michael goes, kind of like the witness protection program, to which Oscar's like, not at all like that. It's, it's not at all like this. And so it cuts to Michael for another scene, and it's, it's one of those famous scenes from the entire series. Like Michael gets very serious, puts on this very serious face, and not recognizing that declaring bankruptcy is, is like a legal thing. Like he thought you just declared it. And, and so Michael walks out into the middle of the office, gets a serious face, and he yells at the top of his voice. He goes, I declare bankruptcy. And of course, they have to like break the news to him. or like, that, that's not actually how you do it, right? So he's embarrassed himself, but, but he's, he's at least come to the place of like, hey, this is, this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm in over my head with my debt, and I'm going to have to come to the place of, of bankruptcy. And so, church, I just want to ask you very simply today, are you, are you willing to declare your bankruptcy before God? Are you willing to, to come to the place that not only are you empty-handed, but you're actually in an irreparable deficit? Are you willing to declare bankruptcy before God? And if so, this is the promise to you. God offers you so much more than a clean slate. He doesn't just offer you a clean slate. He doesn't just wipe the debt clear. The promise of the first beatitude is that if you will admit your bankruptcy, you will admit your spiritual poverty before God, not only will he clean the slate of your sin, he will give you all of himself in return. He is what he offers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are impoverished in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you belong to him, he belongs to you, and the blessedness that you receive from him is infinitely greater than the superficial happiness that's offered to you by this world. With one sentence, Jesus turned the whole paradigm on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for this good news. We thank you that we can come to you in our deficit, that we come to you in our poverty, and that you delight in this. 
that you delight when we wave the white flag. You, you, you are delighted, Father, when we admit our nothingness before you. When we come to you recognizing that we are completely in over our heads, that we have gotten ourselves in a deep, deeper hole than we will ever be able to get ourselves out of. We thank you that you promise if we come to you poor in spirit, you will meet us in the riches of your blessing and mercy. Father, help us to not live for the superficial happiness of this world. Help us to live and operate out of the abundant blessedness we are given in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we come to you now in our poverty, confessing once again our dependence on you, our need for you. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to thy cross we cling. We do that now. We look to you. So if you'll keep your heads bowed here for just a few moments, we'll prepare our hearts to come to the table for the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul exhorts the church in Corinth that before we come to the table, examine yourselves. We should examine ourselves that we should never do this lightly. We should not come to the table in an unworthy manner. We should never take for granted the significance of, of what Jesus has done so that we could be saved. And so let's just do that now. Let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to, to search our hearts and to search our minds, to reveal to us patterns and inconsistencies in our lives, things that are out of step with God's word. And I think today in particular, asking him to reveal patterns of pride in our lives, whether it's the pride of believing we can just keep it all up on our own, the pride of believing we're smarter than the word of God, the pride of believing that we need to add to God's word because it's not clear enough. The pride of believing that we can just earn holiness by being secluded from the world. The pride of believing that we've got to establish the kingdom on our own by force. Just ask the Lord to break our hearts of pride. Even the pride of self-pity. The pride that refuses to believe his goodness and the truth of the gospel. That believes our sin is too great for him somehow. Let's take just a moment here, confess sin, confess thoughts, motives, actions, habits, anything that's out of step with who Jesus has called us to be. Let's lay that now at his feet. And as we do this, let's also ask the Lord to grant us a heart of true and genuine repentance, a complete change of mind that leads to a change of life, an agreement with God about the nature of our sin, an agreement with God about who we are apart from Jesus, an agreement with God about who he is and about the goodness and the purity and the sufficiency of his word. Let's ask him for a heart of true and genuine repentance as we humbly receive everything that he offers us in Jesus. So Father, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise. We thank you that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that when we came to you in our deficit and debt of sin, you not only wiped the slate clean, but you gave us everything in return in Jesus. Help us to see that you are what you offer. And as we leave this place, Father, 
Help us to not pursue the virtues of this world and the superficial happiness that it offers, but to operate in the blessedness and the approval that we have already received in Jesus Christ. We rest in this today. And we thank you for what you've made possible through us, through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. So, Father, as we come to the table, as we continue to confess, to repent, to sing, Lord, let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you. God, will you take our, our broken, imperfect offering and make it acceptable in your sight. May the gospel be declared once again in a new way in our hearts and minds as we worship you now and as we visibly see it demonstrated at the table. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.